Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the inland Pacific Northwest of the magnificent United States of America. Today is 28th of October, 2020, and it is uh, mid to late afternoon here with beautiful late October skies. So weather couldn't be more perfect and the colors are genuinely magnificent. So let's get right into this discussion today. Now, <clears throat> as a prolegomena to this discussion, I want to give you some sense of how I understand um, correlations in biochemistry related to consistency in individual biological entities, such as a human, one human being compared to another. So I think perhaps it's in the mind because of the rotation of the earth on its axis and the presentation of its mass to our nearest star that habituates the idea of a cyclical nature in biological systems and in overall a consideration of how things change over time. Now, however, since space and time are never the same twice, indeed, they're relatively uncertain, in my estimation of it, not even the day-night chronicity is a true cycle. And for one thing, we never think of day being predisposed to night or night predisposed to day, nor do we think that one necessarily follows another in terms of some kind of cause and effect relationship. They simply do, and we know why, because of the rotation of the earth, right? So when you think about biological systems, they are going to be associated with diurnal fluctuations. And that kind of synchronicity will turn into a chronicity or a clockwork in the human body. And that's on a daily basis, night, dark. But we know that that photo period changes over time, right? So in the longest day of the year, when, uh, when summer's full on, um, the photo period here can be, oh, I don't know, 17 hours, maybe something like that. Whereas in the shortest day, you know, during the winter solstice, um, photo period is only going to be like, what, maybe eight hours. So it's greatly reduced. And so your body is going to notice that alteration. And that's much longer than a diurnal fluctuation. That's over a period of 365.25 days. But I think that no one would come out and tell you that your mind or your body or your muscle tone uh, can attribute, let's say, a photo period of 10.4 hours to a photo period of 11 hours, um, or even moving into that scale, moving up that increase in photo period. But I can tell you, because I studied plants for many years, that plants can detect that. In fact, plants can detect very small incremental changes in photo period. In fact, there are entire descriptions of how plants flower according to whether or not they're a short day plant, a day neutral plant, 
or a long day plan. And those calling them short day and long day, it's not just that they flower, for example, as the days are getting shorter or the days are getting longer, but they have a limit day that they have to reach for the flowering mechanism to be induced. And then after that shortest or longest photo period has been recognized by photoreceptors in the palisade layer of the leaf, does the plant respond by uh, a photoperiodic response that could be associated with production of flower primordia. That's how budding occurs, for example, in the spring. It's also how leaves unroll in certain species. So there is a photoperiodicity that can be recognized down to less than a minute by higher plants. Whereas in animals, I don't think we've ever, I haven't never seen any literature that would recommend that an animal like a human can tell according to the photoperiod being, like I said, between 10 and a half hours and 11 hours, um, necessarily a metabolic shift or a muscle tone shift. And so there are degrees of variability on the tonicity of the photoperiod. So having said all that, um, it is a pattern, but it's a pattern or a familiar sequence of events. And it's not really anything more than that. So it's not a cycle, a true cycle in my way of looking at it. It's when like a wheel goes round, right? You see a wheel go round and it goes round and it goes round. And unless it's moving like on pavement, like a bicycle or a car tire or a truck tire, um, that wheel is in place. It's just spinning on its axis. Now, if you took any point on the rim of that wheel and you put a dot on it or you followed it with a laser and you determined that space time differential, each time the wheel went round, you would actually be able to tell that the coordinates are not identical. And that's because the wheel turning around in a fixed space, like in your basement, is actually also on the planet Earth. And the planet Earth is rotating. And the planet itself is moving around the sun. And the planet and the solar system itself is moving around a greater central um, system. And then the whole system is also moving in some direction, right? So it, it's, it, if you follow the expanding universe model, it's, it's involved in that expansion um, motif. So it's not exactly in the same space and certainly not at the same time. And even if you took that point that you, you touched on the, on the tire and asked to see where it is next time it goes around, it's in a different time. Of course, because time is advanced. And because time is advanced, so has space. So that, that's uh, the way of, uh, the way of uh, it's a derivatization of the um, space-time relativity theory, right? That once you change your space coordinates, you also change a time coordinate. And if you change time coordinate, you also change the space coordinate. So there is really no getting back to the exact position. It's always changing. It just seems like it's not changing. 
right? So that's why I say it's a pattern, or I would call it more like a familiar sequence of events. And beyond that, it is not anything like a cycle where there is an identical return. So no two moments are identical. And so in our internal circadian clock tracks patterns, but by means of which this detection operates at the cellular and molecular level, as well as the event itself involves a involves the revolving celestial bodies in constant flux. So in time, the pattern becomes less uniform. While the ideal presents as a fixed and is familiar, and it seems to be displayed perhaps intentionally and subsequently neurologically as an apparent classical experiential phenomenon. Okay, so that's kind of a, the way that I look at this at the level of metaphysics. And I apply my metaphysics to my science because I want to be able to embed this science within what my worldview is, right? So I want you to keep in this in mind as we talk about the biological clock system. All right, and this series of lectures that we so far have been going through I have given biochemical and physiological profiles of the aging process. So the following is just sort of a really short summary. By no means is it exhaustive about where we are right now in this sequence of lectures. We told you that decreasing population of T effector cells with concomitant increases in T regulatory and T memory cells occur due to specific alterations in transcription factor expression that drive the transcription uh, of what eventually becomes, after translation, cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, and particularly transcription factors. Right? Now, an alteration also occurs with aging of antigen-presenting cells. This is back into an innate immune uh, component. In particular, the APC MHC populations relative to an increasing display of host protein fragments as epitopes, thus driving an acquired immune response toward, as you age, an autoimmune pathophysiology. What else have we talked about in the last month or so? There's an increase in solid organ fibrosis and that's as a surrogate to damage repair. And that's due to increasing ROS production as a result of steady increases in mutations and epigenetic modifications that hinder oxidative phosphorylation, particularly the electron transport chain, and ultimately promoting glycolysis via mitophagy and peroxisomal phagy. So you have turnover of mitochondria, you have turnover of peroxisomes. This is also something that occurs as the cells age. Eventually, the constitution of the mitochondrial electron transport chain and that embedded in the enzymatic functioning of the peroxisome diminish over time. I also told you that fibrosis leads to hypertrophy. 
and that's particularly in the cardiovascular system, as well as occlusion, embolism, and uh, concomitant with that, dysregulated oxygen saturation in the blood. Thus, that induces hypoxic conditions over time that drive a tendency towards autophagy and then apoptosis, thus diminishing organ function, at least at those two levels. Okay, you get fibrosis. Remember, fibrocytes are replacement or surrogate cells, but they don't have the same function of, say, um, hepatocytes. If you get fibrosis in the liver uh, and you get you know, the, uh, filling in dead hepatocytes with fibrocytes, those fibrocytes don't have the function of a hepatocyte. Consider it along those lines. So you're filling in, but you're not filling in with the same function. Because the structure is different. That means the genes expressed are different. So this is a clear level of understanding that I think we're in now with our discussion of aging. Continuing, there's an enhanced inability to conduct DNA damage repair couples with, coupled with a contrarian enhancement of NAD-linked poly-ADP ribosylation, which is a kind of repair, remember, and that is associated with tumor-generated programmed death ligand signaling to naive CD4-positive and CD8-positive T lymphocytes, thus dysregulating differentiation into important and critical T helper cell populations that could otherwise limit tumorigenesis. Okay, what else? There's a failure over time during aging in humans of the endocrine system. And there's also a dysfunctional autocrine and paracrine signaling. And that includes, at the metabolic level, dyslipidemia. And that mediates membrane raft aggregation of protease receptors that alter signal transduction cascades and voltage-gated channel insurrection. And ultimately, you end up with necrotosis and ferritosis. We also have talked over the last while that reprogramming of lipid metabolism diminishes prenolipid control over protein migration, endosomes, exosomes, endogenous membrane networks, and extracellular secretion. We've talked a lot about the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, or SAS particularly in the central nervous system, which is associated with degeneration of CNS, particularly neurons. So that results in a loss of function of neural networks and a dysregulation of microglial control. And that can lead to Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, and in fact, indeed, neuropsychiatric disorders associated with aging such as dementia, and in behavior and motor neuron action potential firing. There's also a lack of physiologically relevant replacement cell division driven by SASP and sequelae following what SASP is doing from long distance trafficking of that signal. You also get an increase over uh, with aging over time of more infectious disease. Uh, so, and you also get a general respiratory distress system syndrome. You get, you get a reduction in oxygen 
uh, in, uh, in uh, oxygen uptake and CO2 removal. This leads to malfunctioning and deterioration of the cardiovascular system. You also can pick up metabolic diseases. We talked about that because of, for example, dyslipidemia. Cancer, which I just talked about because of the corruption of the immune system. And ultimately neurodegeneration, and that's in the CNS and periphery, and that can then ultimately lead to death, all those major associated morbidities with death, right? So that's kind of where we are. So uh, now we can continue on, all right? So I'm gonna tell you about a paper published in the Journal of Molecular Endocrinology in 2019, and that was volume 63 of that year, and the pages are R93 to 102. This is gonna talk again about circadian clock. So what did we learn from this paper? There's a daily earth rotation of about 24 hours. And we know that it probably impacts at some level physiological processes. It does so through a genetically inherited and modified transdistribution of events, of course, at the molecular level. And they could be linked to classical evolutionary mechanisms such as selection, genetic drift, and recombination. Study of those processes has provided for an ostensible architecture of an intrinsic circadian clock. And we see this in most species. Animals have adapted behavioral changes, of course, which correspond with light and temperature cycles to respond to and anticipate basic bioenergetics, especially because of heterotrophy and essentiality of specific nutrients, such as humans needing essential amino acids, essential fatty acids, and of course, certain vitamins. Now, in addition to this rhythmicity in sleep activity cycles, which we see in mammals, there are also many other examples of 24-hour physiological rhythms, including body temperature fluctuations, circulating hormonal levels, and metabolism itself bioenergetics. There's an important and defining aspect of circadian rhythms, and that is that they persist in the absence of external cues. Yet, external cues are important for synchronizing or even in training rhythms. The classical period of time studying, this, studying these uh, mechanisms, the literature suggests it was most circadian rhythms were entrained by light and light alone. However, light is only one of the cues that can entrain the biological circadian clock. Moreover, much research on the mammalian clock was focused on the suprachiasmatic nucleus, something we've been talking about. You know, that's a portion of the hypothalamus. And that's considered the central pacemaker, right? But we now know the circadian clock itself is actually an intrinsic property of cells, right? Not just of a um, central nervous system nucleus. And that's found in di many different tissues. Now the uh, SCN does serve to synchronize the peripheral clocks. That's still very important. But the specific machinery underlying these circadian clocks differs from organism to organism. 
And at the cellular level, they depend on the transcription of a set of core clock genes. And that underscores an evolutionary conservation of core clock mechanisms. And you usually see this across species. Okay. So we're starting to get into this now in some detail. And I'm hoping that you're, um, you're following where, where we're going with this because I'm trying remember what I said at the beginning. Um, I told you about the fact that these aren't like true cycles, right? They aren't cycles that always come back to the same set point. If you want to look at it that way. The set point itself is always shifting. Maybe only a little per cycle, but over time that set point must shift for us to be able to proceed through this sequence of events. Because this is not a cycle more than it is a teleological path towards the next important gateway response, right? Because the whole organism and the cells within the organism are aging over time. You're clocking the aging response. Right? So the first clock gene period, it's called period, was discovered through investigations in our old friend Desophila by looking at mutants. And the mutations in period gene gave you abnormal uh, behavioral phenotypes. The molecular base of the clock, the, of the per gene it's called, exhibited a circadian rhythm and the per protein seemed to regulate per gene expression. So per controlled its own transcription right? as a transacting factor. The first mammalian core clock gene called clock was discovered in um, a what's called a forward genetic screen in mice with in those mice having uh, what appeared to be malfunctioning or abnormal circadian behavioral patterns. So the clock protein in mice has features in common with the Drosophila per gene, including a PAS domain, and that's for per gene, the gene called per, the gene called ARNT, and the gene called SIM. Okay, so it's the PAS domain. However, clock and its binding partner, a gene product called BMAL1, also have this basic helix loop helix domain. And that allows those proteins to bind DNA directly to regulatory elements called E boxes on what are known as rhythmic genes. And that all is of course aligned to influence transcription. So the major targets of the clock BMAL1 include other core clock genes. That encode, that encode the mammalian version of the PER ortholog. And there's three of those, PERS 1, 2, and 3. A protein called cryptochrome, which is um, shortened to CRY. And there are two CRY proteins, CRY1 and CRY2, and those are repressor proteins. Now, these negative regulators will heterodimerize and then translocate to the nucleus where they repress their own transcription. And they do that by directly act, uh, interacting with the clock BMEL1 transcription dimer, moiety. 
In addition to the direct transcriptional feedback, you also have messenger RNA expression of the PER 1, 2, and 3, and CRY 1, 2. And that's regulated by all kinds of different mechanisms, including microRNA. And we'll get into those. Now, the degradation of the PER and CRY proteins is also, of course, going to be regulated. And, it, and it's regulated by a um, pathway associated with serine threonine kinases and casein kinase 1 delta, that's known as CK1 delta, and a CK1 epsilon, as well as FBox proteins called FBXL3 and FBXL21. FBox proteins are associated with the Cullen complex, and that's involved in proteolytic turnover. <clears throat> Once negative transcriptional feedback and this post-transcriptional and post-translational regulation, such as the, uh, the FBox proteins, is sufficient to decrease the per-cry protein levels within the nucleus, remember these transcription factors, full repression then gets generated. And, it's and it can be relieved by the um, removal of the clock BMAL1 dimer transcription factor complex. And that then starts a whole new rhythmicity of sequence of events that they call a cycle for the per cry gene transcription to reform. So the current model for the clock network of genes and the expression is pretty well described in the literature. If you go into it, it's, it's there. Many, many review articles. The detail involving the second major transcriptional loop, loop of the clock BMAL1 transcribes nuclear receptors such as REV-ERB-alpha and REV-ERB-beta. Those are important proteins in this system. More proteins. Once translated, they those two proteins, the REV proteins, compete with, <clears throat> here we go, retinoic acid-related orphan receptors. We've heard about a lot of these in the past. It's really important in uh, T cells, particular type of T cell, T helper cell 17, if you recall. So these, these proteins, the REV proteins, compete with ROR alpha, ROR beta, and ROR gamma for binding sites, right? And those are all known as ROR binding elements. And that's on the gene that codes for the BMAL1. So ultimately that provides a positive ROR or ROR and negative REV-ERB regulation of transcription, which generates a link between the circadian clock and the metabolic pathways. And those metabolic pathways include, of course, biosynthesis and bioenergetics. There's also a third feedback loop, which we'll go into just very quickly here. And that involves a D-box binding protein called DBP and the nuclear factor interleukin-3 regulated protein known as NFIL3, which we talked a great deal about when we're talking about T-lymphocyte activation. And remember that NFIL3 is also known as E4BP4, 
Those turn out to be regulated by the clock BMAL1 and CRY1. They bind to the D-box elements on circadian promoters, and those include promoters for the genes of ROR A, ROR alpha, and ROR beta. Together, that system gives you feedback loops that make up the full molecular clock. Okay, and they are governed transcriptionally, post-transcriptionally, and post-translationally. So it's three different levels of regulatory mechanism. And that appears to be sufficient and also necessary to maintain the mammalian circadian rhythm. However, there are external cues and they are important in synchronizing and refining the rhythm of the cells within nuclei and across tissues. And that's the next level of conversation we're going to have when we do our next lecture. I'm going to stop here. Hopefully that got us at least reasonably into the clock gene network in mammals, circadian rhythms. I gave you my little understanding of temporality and cycles, right? I also gave you a um, uh, filling up and a pleurotic response to where we should be right now in these lectures. All right, so this is Dr. Dan Guerra. And remember, I'm doing this because I have nothing better to do. And also, I'm going to say bye for now.